Well, it is clear something has clicked for this Gonzaga team after blasting San Diego on Saturday. Is it enough to get this team fully back on track ahead of a big game coming up this week? Let's discuss right here on the Locked On Zags podcast. You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome into Locked On Zags Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, here to bring you news and updates on all things Zag athletics. Today's episode of Locked On Zags is brought to you by FanDuel. Make every moment more. Folks, right now, new customers can get $150 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. Visit FanDuel.com slash Locked On today to get started. Happy Monday, folks. It is Mailbag Monday here on Locked on Zags. A reminder, the best way to get involved in Mailbag Monday these days is to join the Discord channel. It is Locked on Zags Discord. Over 300 different Gonzaga fans hanging out every single day, asking questions, talking amongst each other about the WCC, about Zags and the NBA, the women's basketball team. Of course, we also have game threads going on for every Gonzaga basketball game. It is free to join, and there is a link in the show notes here on both audio and video platforms. We're going to get right into our mailbag questions today. Jeff, via Gmail, the other way you can ask questions, you can reach out to me, Andy Patton, 013 at gmail.com if you want to get your question answered that way. Jeff says, something clearly clicked with Gonzaga since halftime of the game against Pepperdine. They just look like a different, sharper team than what we have seen most of the season so far. Could the lineup that has Ben Gregg starting rather than Dusty Stromer have something to do with it, or is it something else? Christian via Gmail asks a similar question. He says, Tom Hudson mentioned in the radio postgame that the Zags have been on fire and in sync for the last three halves or 60 minutes and that this is cause for optimism. I know it's against lesser opponents, but could this be a sign of good things to come? Yeah, really hard to not get excited about how this team played on the road in particular. I know it's easy to be like, well, they beat Pepperdine by a bunch of points two weeks ago. They beat San Diego by a bunch of points two weeks ago. And then they had that clunker against Santa Clara. And yes, all of that is true. There's no debate about that. Gonzaga's got a game coming up against San Francisco this week. They're a very good team. Uh, It kind of the recipe is set up to look like a similar situation. But Gonzaga's wins this week against Pepperdine and San Diego were on the road. And I do think that that matters. We'll talk a little later in the show about the kind of lack of energy that we saw in both the buildings uh, in Firestone Fieldhouse and Jenny Craig Pavilion on the road uh, and what that kind of means about the WCC at this point. But Gonzaga's played poorly on the road up until those two games. Up through the first half against Pepperdine, Gonzaga had pretty much not played well on, on the road at all. They played decent in the first half against Washington. They had a really nice stretch of basketball against Santa Clara in the second half. Other than that, they were bad on the road. And then they obliterated Pepperdine in that second half, a 25-point win in that half alone. And then they just never really let San Diego have even a flying chance of being in that basketball game on Saturday. And yes, both those teams are not very good. But Gonzaga's ability to win on the road is vital and critical, and not just win, dominate. This looked like the Gonzaga that we are used to over the last six years. This And the streak of being an AP Top 25, most of the time they've been in that Top 25, this is what they look like was how they played in these two games. Parts of it, I think, are Dusty Stromer and Braden Huff getting more comfortable being in road environments. Both of them had not played well in road games really at all up until this point, them playing better. I mean, Braden Huff was absolutely incredible 
in that game against San Diego. He was an absolute machine in that game. Dusty Stromer looked really good as well, both in the second half against Pepperdine and throughout this game against San Diego on Saturday. So I think those two guys getting more comfortable. I think Gonzaga's just more comfortable pushing the pace. That's something they struggled with. They couldn't get out in transition. They were struggling when they when they were attempting to. They weren't able to. Teams were doing a good job of getting back and kind of forcing them to play a half-court offense. I think Nemhard really pushed the pace extremely well in both these games, was comfortable and willing to do so, getting this team out into transition, getting opportunities to score that way. The defense was fantastic. That also got them a lot of, of, of those opportunities to get out and transition as well. And then Graham E.K., just absolute machine on the block. His passing out of double teams has improved as the season has gone on. I know that Mark Few had a, a conversation with him before the San Diego State game and basically said, you need to be more assertive. We need you to be the guy on this team. He hadn't taken on that role yet. Once he kind of shifted his mentality to do that, I think that changed this team in a big way as well. Certainly want to see what this team looks like against San Francisco. Uh, the week after that, they'll get St. Mary's. And then, of course, they'll get Kentucky on the road. Uh, they don't necessarily have to win all of those games, but how they play in those games, I think, is going to tell us a lot more than what we necessarily learned in these two games. But it was encouraging nonetheless. Regarding the part, the portion of the question about uh, Dusty Stromer and Ben Gregg, this question here comes from Austin via Discord, who says, with Ben starting over Dusty, what are the pros and cons to this change? Ben's a great rebounder, and it was immediately evident in both these two games. Ben, I think he had five rebounds in the first four or five minutes against Pepperdine. He had a bunch of rebounds early against San Diego as well. Gonzaga's ability to prevent the opposing team from getting second chance points uh, to kind of make them, force them to be one and done offensively, that's a huge Huge benefit. Dusty's a, a good rebounding guard, but Ben is a better rebounder. It's not particularly close. Most of that is a, a credit to Ben, not necessarily a knock on Dusty. Ben's also, at this point, a better floor spacer offensively. Now, Dusty has improved and was shooting really well, but Ben's Ben is more comfortable, I think, being that playing that floor spacing role offensively than Dusty is, and I think that that has helped Gonzaga's offense be a little bit more fluid, a little bit more open. Uh, it also changes Anton Watson's role in, I think, a positive way, especially defensively. Watson can play defense away from the rim because Ben is down low. When Dusty's starting, Anton is forced to be a low post defender. And while he's good at that, don't get me wrong, it's taking away his best skill, which is on the perimeter. He's, he's best as a perimeter defender. And when we start this lineup with Ben playing the four and Watson playing more of the three, it allows Anton to, to wreak havoc on the perimeter in ways that he's not able to do otherwise. I think offensively, Anton's still kind of the four. He's still playing a lot of post-up basketball. He's still getting the ball on the block, whereas Ben's never getting the ball on the block. So I think offensively, Ben's still kind of more the three. But I think that it allows Watson to be more himself defensively. Uh, and then, of course, the other big key here is that it helps Dusty. Dusty's been better since he's been moved to the bench, and I think there's less pressure on him. I think he feels more comfortable in this role, and I think it has helped him thrive in ways that uh, I think they really needed to get out of him, and I think this is part of the reason that that has helped. Next question here comes from Strike Nowhere on Discord, who says, with Anton's three-point percentage in the 40s and his shift to playing the three, should he be taking more shots from outside? I know the sample isn't as large as like Hickman's, but he's shown that he's improved shooting deep enough that I wish he would take more. Yeah, I think couple things. I think Watson's three-point percentage is high because of how selective he is. 
him being a 40% shooter is not as simple as, well, he'll just take more and he'll stay a 40% three-point shooter. I don't think that's the case. It's a bit like Chet Holmgren in the NBA, who has insanely high levels of efficiency because he's very selective with what shots he takes. Watson doesn't take threes unless he is wide open. And I think that has helped him have a high percentage. Does that mean that Watson should take more threes? I, maybe yes. Like, I'm not saying that he shouldn't take more threes to protect his his percentage. Uh, if Watson were to drop to 35%, but on a bigger volume, that's not necessarily a bad thing for Gonzaga. However, I do think, and I kind of alluded to it in the previous question, I don't really think Watson's the three on offense. I think Ben is. I think Ben plays more of the three because Watson's still getting the ball on the block. We saw that a lot in both the San Diego and the Pepperdine games. He's not really his role offensively is still as the four, whereas his role defensively is what has changed. I don't think that Watson, I, I think Watson taking more threes could be a good thing, but I think it's within the flow of the offense. I don't think there needs to be a directive or like a plan from the coaching staff of, Hey, take more threes. It's just, Hey, you have the green light when you are open. And when you feel like it is a good shot to take a three, but you don't have to, and maybe that'll lead to him taking more threes, but, but maybe it won't. Certainly the way the offense has looked in the last three halves of basketball. I wouldn't change anything uh, regardless of how, what that does to Watson's total number of attempts. Final question, sticking with the three-point uh, conversation. This one comes from Austin via Discord as well. He says, we shot 40% from three against San Diego. Why? What? The shot selection appeared to be about the same, so it is just baffling. San Diego is a very, very bad defensive team. <laughs> like it's That's not to put down Gonzaga's offense in that situation, but San Diego is, is not good. They're not really good at offense or defense, but they're historically in the two years that Steve Lavin has been the head coach, they've been one of the worst teams in the entire country defending the perimeter. Part of that could be that Steve Lavin's previous coaching experience was in an era where the three-point shot wasn't as utilized as it is now. That's just speculation on my part. I don't know exactly, but it sure seems like some of the things that have changed in basketball over the last decade since Steve Lavin was last to coach are the things that San Diego is the worst at, and I don't think that that is a coincidence. The shot selection may look similar, but I think Gonzaga is far more open. The ball movement is much better. I think Gonzaga is more fluid with the way they move the basketball. Graham Ek's ability to pass out of double teams has improved. That is a huge thing for Gonzaga. You'll see Ek kick it out, and his he may not get the assist. He may kick it out to Dusty, who swings it to Ryan, who swings it to Nolan, who hits an open three. And that kind of offense, that kind of fluidity, ball movement, that's what we're used to. That's the Jalen Suggs, Corey Kispert, Joel Eiai offenses of years past. Julian Strother, Rasir Bolton, even if we want to be more recent. That's what those offenses look like. So while in a vacuum, I don't think that they're, you know, they weren't taking a bunch of contested threes before. They were taking more or less open threes before, but the offense was stunted. It was less fluid. And I think, you know, there was a lot of times where like Ryan Nembard felt forced to shoot a three because they went under on the screen and that's just what you're supposed to do. And he just, he maybe wasn't feeling as confident about it or it just wasn't as fluid. And now the offense just looks like it's paced better, like players are more comfortable within their roles. And that improved confidence coupled with playing a team that's not good, uh, I think helps helps the team shoot a, a little bit better. We'll see if it carries over. San Francisco is a very good defensive team. They got them on, on Thursday. Pacific, hopefully, is a team that they shoot very well against, but San Francisco in particular will be an interesting kind of litmus test for how this three-point shooting has translated. Well, who is this team's MVP so far on the season? We're going to talk about that and an update from Mark Few re regarding freshman guard Luka Krinovich. All that coming up after a word from today's sponsor, FanDuel. As the weather gets colder, the college basketball offers, will they stay hot on FanDuel. And right now, new customers can get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 Moneyline bet. 
That's 150 bucks in your pocket if your team wins. So if you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time than right now, a few months before March, to get in on the action. The FanDuel app is super easy to use. There is a wide range of betting options, which includes spreads, player props, over-unders, and more. Right on the Lady Zags, 10,000 to 1 odds to win the national championship. We'll talk a little bit more about Lisa Fortier's team later in the show, but I kind of like those odds right now. If you're with me, visit FanDuel.com slash locked on and get in on the action this college basketball season. FanDuel, an official partner of the NFL. All right, segment two here on Mailbag Monday. We got plenty more questions to get to, so we're going to get right into it. This next question comes from Way of Life on Discord, who says, Who do you think is the team's MVP so far this season? And for the team to keep the Sweet 16 streak alive, who needs to be the overall season MVP? You know, the answer to both questions is Anton. Anton has been the team's MVP right now up to this point, and honestly, I don't think it's that close. Uh, Anton leads the team in points. He leads the team in rebounds. He leads the team in steals. He leads the team in three-point percentage, not something anybody would have projected uh, based on his previous three-point shooting. So points, rebounds, steals, three-point percentage. He is second on the team in assists. He is tied for third on the team in blocks. He is third on the team in field goal percentage. He is second on the team in effective field goal percentage. And he is fifth on the team in usage rate, which is an indication that he is hyper-efficient, being able to lead the team in scoring and most every other metric while not being the player with the ball in his hands the most. And I think the answer is still the same again for, for what this team needs to do to be in the Sweet 16. Anton Watson needs to be their best player because his impact on the team, not just offensively, I mean, anytime you're, you're talking about a player who's your leading scorer, your leading rebounder, and your leading three-point shooter by percentage, you're thinking, okay, clearly that guy's really important to this team offensively. But Watson's also their best defender, and it's not close. He's a phenomenal defensive player. He's one of the best defensive players in the country. Should win WCC Defensive Player of the Year. We'll see if he wins it over somebody like Mitchell Saxon or Jonathan Mobo at San Francisco. But he is a, a top-tier perimeter defensive player. He's great at getting steals. He's got really active hands. His on-ball defense is incredible. For this team to be in the Sweet 16, Anton Watson is the most critical player. Graham E.K. is important. Ryan Nemhart is important in particular because there's not a lot of depth behind him. But Anton Watson is the most critical player to this team, and it showed up in games like it did against UCLA, and it has showed up in games like it did against Santa Clara. Even though they lost that game, they wouldn't have been close without Anton Watson. I think it's to me it's very clear that he is the best and most important player on this team. Next question here comes from Strike Nowhere on Discord, who says, any word yet? On when Luca will be cleared, I believe we are in the four to six week range. Yeah, we just hit it. Uh, I think that as of today, we are almost, we're about at the five week mark, actually. So we're a little into that four to six week range uh, from December 15th when he got hurt uh, leading up to that UConn game. A uh, few talked about it after the San Diego game. He said that Luca's about there, but he needs some more practice reps. He said he hasn't caught a basketball in over a month. So certainly there's just some some practice, some fatigue stuff, I'm sure, just kind of getting back in the rhythm of, of playing college basketball basketball on a regular basis. I mean, you can heal your wrist, heal your arm, heal, heal whatever's hurting you. Uh, but if you haven't played basketball in a while, getting back into game shape is, is something that takes some time. 
Uh, I would suspect he's not ready for San Francisco this week. Maybe the earliest we see him is that Pacific game on Saturday. After that, maybe LMU the next week. Uh, the next game after that, St. Mary's. I don't think he'll play in that game, regardless of whether he's healthy. The latest, I think it might be, is the February 7th game against Portland. My guess is it's either Pacific, LMU, or Portland, hopefully on the front end of that. It'll be interesting to see how much he plays going forward this year. Uh, his growth, his development is an important thing for Gonzaga long-term uh, and getting him some more opportunities to play in games this year, getting Ryan Nembhard a little bit more rest. Uh, all those things I think are very important. And then hopefully he gets the opportunity to do that uh, in the coming weeks. Next question comes from Dawson on Discord who says, can you explain the net rankings? I'm sure not, I'm not the only one who doesn't fully get it. Gonzaga's 35 at the time I'm writing this. Isn't that a pretty safe to be an at-large considering 68 teams make it? Well, so first of all, no top 33 team has ever missed, and we will talk about that in a second. But I would acknowledge that it's not just as simple as the top 68 teams. Remember, 32 conferences in college basketball all get an automatic bid. So the number of at-large bids that exist in the NCAA tournament is 36. So a top 35 team would in theory be in that conversation. Obviously, again, it's more complicated than that. There are teams in the top 35 who are in, yeah, in the top 35 of the net who are going to also secure their conferences automatic bid, but there are also potential bid stealers. Like if somebody like, I don't know, Wake Forest were to win the ACC tournament when they're maybe not projected to be in the field. They're kind of a bubble team right now. Uh, if somebody like Vanderbilt were to win the SEC tournament, that could potentially, uh, you know, add an extra team. Obviously, there's some some potential bid thieves in like the Mountain West and the A-10 and other conferences like that as well. So it's a little bit more complicated than just, hey, if you're a top 35 team in the net, you should make it. But historically, that has been the case. I'm not going to get into a ton of the details on the net. There are good websites that explain it a little bit more, but it's a, it's a computer system that measures teams' victory scales scaled by quad one, quad two, quad three, and quad four. Uh, those measurements are based on the the quality of the team you played, based on whether you were home, away, or on a neutral floor. They change throughout the season. So, like, you know, Gonzaga play, might play a team that was a quad two game when they played them, and then that team lost a bunch of games, and now it's a new quad three game. That's unfortunate for Gonzaga. They cannot control that. This is more or less what's happened with why it's frustrating that USC and UCLA have been complete bummers this entire season because Gonzaga beat those teams and thought, okay, those are going to be marquee victories that are going to look good on our resume from a net perspective because they should be quad one games and they're not. And it's not Gonzaga's fault that those games are not quad one games. Those teams have just not done what they were expected to do. So that's part of the frustration. Uh, net also does factor in margin of victory and various other things. Uh, it is, again, a, a bit complicated to explain. My main thing that I would say is that the selection committee doesn't, it's not a be-all end-all. It is obviously a valuable tool that members of the selection committee use. Some probably value it more than others. That's just the nature, human nature, frankly, but it is not a be-all end-all. Also saying, well, Gonzaga's 35th, shouldn't that put them in the, the it's going to change. It's going to change, and I think that's the big thing is if Gonzaga loses another bad game, they drop significantly. They climbed a bunch from like 50 to 35 because they blew out teams on the road, which the net rankings really value, but I don't know how much the committee – the committee probably didn't think Gonzaga jumped 15 spots because they blew out Pepperdine on the road. That's the difference between a computer system, which values that more than maybe a human eye might. Those are kind of some of the intricacies that goes into it. Next question comes from Malaskis on Discord. It's a similar uh, kind of conversation. They say, a top 33 net team has never missed the tournament. Both St. Mary's and Gonzaga are in the top 30 right now. Is it possible the WCC can be a two-bid league? 
On that same note, Christian via Gmail also asks, who is the likely record of the winner of the WCC? Sorry, what is, yeah, who is the winner of the WCC? Is it ultimately going to come down to the Gales and Zags as it has for 20 plus years? Yes, it probably is going to. I think Santa Clara is in that conversation the way they've played so far this year. San Francisco is in that conversation as well, but I don't think either of those teams are going to be able to unseat either Gonzaga or St. Mary's. I think we're going to go into a WCC tournament where the Zags and the Gales are your two double buys. They're going to end up playing probably San Francisco and Santa Clara uh, in those in the semifinals games. If they win, they play each other in the WCC tournament championship. Probably going to look pretty similar to how it has the last 5, 10, 15 years in the WCC. Can the WCC be a two-bid tournament, two-bid conference? Yeah, at this point, yes. We've kind of fluctuated up and down on whether we thought that was possible. It certainly didn't look possible a few weeks ago. St. Mary's has played great as of late. Gonzaga has played much better outside of that Santa Clara game, of course, which was a huge bummer for them. But ultimately, the problem is that Gonzaga and St. Mary's are going to play each other twice, probably three times. And somebody's going to lose two of those games. And whoever loses two of those games cannot really afford any other losses. If Gonzaga sweeps St. Mary's in the regular season and St. Mary's also loses to San Francisco on the road. I actually think they just won that game. Or maybe that was at home. They lose to San Francisco in whatever game they have left against them, or they lose to Santa Clara, or they lose to LMU, or certainly if they lose to anybody else, a Pepperdine, a a Portland, or somebody like that. That plus two losses to Gonzaga, they're not in the top 30 anymore. Might not even be in the top 40 anymore. Likewise with Gonzaga, if Gonzaga gets swept by St. Mary's or loses once to St. Mary's, loses once to San Francisco, they're not in the top 30 either. They're not in the top 35. They're probably not in the top 40. It depends on, on other factors for both teams. But that's that's the issue is right now, Gonzaga or the WCC has two teams in the top 30, but that's probably not going to last. And I think that's the question. Ultimately, both these teams are not going to feel super comfortable unless they win the WCC tournament. Uh, and that's what both teams are going to be focused on uh, throughout the rest of the season. We've got some talk on the quiet crowds at both Pepperdine and San Diego this last week. We're also going to take a look at building a non-football super conference to rival the Big East. All that coming up right after this. A couple more questions to close out the show here on Mailbag Monday on the Lockdown Zags podcast. This question comes from Salag16 on Discord who says, a little tongue-in-cheek, but what happens first? Gonzaga loses to Pepperdine or Mark Few retires? Yeah, sure feels like Pepperdine can't find a way to to get a victory over Mark Few and the Zags. It's been since 2002. Gonzaga obviously took care of business this year against them, despite that tie at halftime, ended up with a 25-point victory. Uh, I'm going to say that it's going to be Few retiring, mostly because I think the amount of times Gonzaga might play Pepperdine is only four to six more times, maybe, depending if Gonzaga can find their way into a different conference. Uh, I think that there are a handful of WCC teams that would become non-conference games that Gonzaga would try to schedule on a semi-regular basis. Certainly St. Mary's would be on that list. Certainly San Francisco could be on that list. I think Portland could be on that list as the Zags would want to play uh, in an area where a lot of their fans are. I don't necessarily think Pepperdine is going to be on that list. So if Gonzaga ends up in the Big 12 or the Big East or some Mountain West Pac-12 hybrid um, conference, I don't think Pepperdine is a team that they play very much. So I think that that streak would probably just go on almost for an eternity, uh, assuming that those two teams don't meet up in like an NCAA tournament down the line or or some preseason conference tournament, which feels unlikely with where Pepperdine is at right now. 
Next question also from Salog16 on Discord says, the crowds at Pepperdine in San Diego seemed less than stellar, at least on TV. Curious your thoughts on this. Usually conference road games are rowdy affairs, and I don't remember too many open seats in the two decades of Gonzaga WCC road games. I think it's a combination of a handful of things for these two games. Uh, the Zags are down. They're not ranked in the top 25. Fans may not feel as compelled to go to those games uh, like local fans. I think the fact that Gonzaga blew out both these teams two weeks ago played a role too. Students don't want to go to a game where like we just played this team and we got beat really badly. So the students were less likely to go to the games. Uh, the local fans were less likely to go to the games. Uh, these tickets are very expensive to get. And I'm doubting, I have a feeling that this, these two schools, not that they should have done this, probably didn't lower the price as much. So it was an expensive ticket to go watch your team probably lose to a team that's not a top 10 team, not a top five team, not even a top 25 team. So I think that played a role in why there was less San Diego fans and less Pepperdine fans. I also think that Gonzaga fans tend to travel really well to these games. And maybe there's some fair weather fans who just didn't make the trip this year, decided not to go to their usual trip at Pepperdine, their usual trip at San Diego, because same reasons. Gonzaga's not in the top 25. This team hasn't been as fun to watch this year. Um, that's my guess. I don't know any specifics outside of that, but I would I would imagine that ticket prices are probably the same as they are when Gonzaga is a top 10, 15 team. And so the interest level just didn't match that demand. And so less people went to the games. Next question comes from Grand Chef Otto on Discord, who says, if you could pillage every non-football conference in Division One to make a super conference to rival the Big East, who would you want? Non-football members of football conferences and football-playing members of non-football conferences are fair game. That last part, I read it at the last second and changed one of my teams because originally I did not have Dayton because they have a football program, but Dayton's in the A-10, so they made the list. I broke this up. I made a 16-team conference which is five teams more than the Big East has. This conference, even with 16 teams, does not light a candle compared to the Big East in a basketball perspective. It's very difficult to do. The Big East is ridiculously loaded outside of DePaul, effectively, and Georgetown this year has been quite bad, although I think they will turn it around here soon. Uh, but I built a West region with eight teams and a Midwest region, which really spans Arizona all the way to New Jersey. So it's not really a Midwest region necessarily, but uh, that was the best way to describe it. The West region is six WCC teams, a WAC team, and a Big West team. You've got Gonzaga, St. Mary's, San Francisco, Santa Clara, LMU, and Portland. I kept Portland in over some other teams that maybe you could make a better argument for because Portland's in a big metro area in uh, in Portland, in the, in the city of or in the state of Oregon, and I think that you'd want to keep that team there. I also added Seattle U for similar reasons. Seattle U is having a good season. They just beat Grand Canyon. We'll talk about them in a second. Uh, and Grand Canyon was probably about to be ranked in the top 25 when Seattle U upset them. So uh, I'd have Seattle U in there along with those six WCC schools. Also give me the Gauchos of Santa Barbara out of the Big West. They've been a consistently good team. It was tough to pick between them or Long Beach, uh, but I went with the Gauchos. I think that Joe Pastor and a great coach. I think that program's on the cusp of being like a really quality year in and year out excellent team in the Big West, and I'd love to have them in this conference. Moving over to the Midwest region, uh, Grand Canyon did make it in this region. Originally, I had them in the West, but I had to move some things around, some teams around here. So since they're not technically directly on the West Coast and every other team is either Portland or is either Oregon, Washington or California, I guess we're counting Grand Canyon uh, in the Midwest region. So they're there alongside Dayton 
alongside St. Louis, alongside Wichita State and Loyola Chicago and St. Joe's and VCU, basically the best teams in the Atlantic 10. The A-10 is pretty clearly the best non-football conference that is not the Big East or the WCC. Frankly, the A-10 is probably better than the WCC at this point. So we steal a whole bunch of teams from the A-10 to build our Midwest region. We also have Grand Canyon. We also have Utah Valley out of the whack. Utah Valley has been a consistently very good basketball team as well. Former coaching spot of Mark Pope, who's now at BYU, former coaching spot of Mark Madsen, who is now at Cal. I think Utah Valley is a a program that has been consistently very good for a long time. So I'd add them into this amalgamation of A-10 schools as well as Grand Canyon to build a West and a Midwest region. Uh, Had a lot of fun with this question, so thanks for asking it. Final question of the show comes from Christian via Gmail, who says, Kayleen Trung dropped 25 on the Gales with seven threes. What is the cloud line ceiling for the Lady Zags? The absolute peak ceiling for the Lady Zags is that they never lose again. I mean, if we're being honest, that is what it is at this point. This team is dominating in the WCC. And we said a bunch of times on this podcast, that's what they need to do. Put teams away. Obliterate teams in this conference. Because the WCC is bad. From a women's basketball perspective, it is not a good conference. There is nobody else who is really good at all outside of Gonzaga. Santa Clara is okay. They're okay. But Gonzaga beat them badly. Portland, who was good last year, lost a lot of talent over the offseason. They're okay still as well. But they got beat very badly by Gonzaga as well. Now Gonzaga's out there blowing up LMU. They're beating St. Mary's. Like This team needs to show the committee. They need to show in the net rankings. They need to show everybody that they are miles ahead of the other teams in this conference. It's a similar thing that Gonzaga, the men's team, had to deal with 10, 12 years ago. Now the WCC's reputation has improved a little bit. Uh, and that has helped Gonzaga not necessarily need to blow everybody out. But that is still the issue the women's team is facing right now. Assuming they win every game from now until the, through the WCC tournament, on Selection Monday for the women's side, they should get a top five seed. They should get a top four seed. They will get a top five seed. That's the best way to put it. If they don't lose, it would be very shocking and upsetting uh, if they were to not get a top five seed in the NCAA tournament. Assuming they get a four seed, which is probably where they would end up, they can make it to the Elite Eight. I think there's a chance they can make it to the Final Four. It's going to be tough. There's a lot of good teams in women's basketball. Uh, This team is very deep. They're very talented. They're very experienced, mostly made up of seniors and super seniors and some juniors. So I think this team's camaraderie, they've all played together. Most of this team played together last year. Most of them have been together for multiple years. Uh, They're a really good three-point shooting team, which is super valuable in the NCAA tournament. They have a dominant low-post player in Yvonne Ejim, who is looking like she should be an All-American at the end of the year. That is a recipe for success. You are well-coached, you are experienced, you are a good outside shooting team, and you have a dominant low-post player. That is what you need to win in March. This team is built to do that. I genuinely believe they can be an Elite Eight team. Once you're in the Elite Eight, anything can happen. You just got to win a couple more games. Do I think they truly can win a national championship? Like I said in the FanDuel read, 10,000 to 1 odds. I might be taking that. I might be taking that. Like This team is that good. Uh, Certainly, you know, teams like Iowa, teams like LSU, like teams, you know, some of the top-tier teams are going to be a problem. But Stanford was ranked third, and Gonzaga beat them. So I don't think it's that crazy. I really don't think it's that crazy to think that this team can be in the – certainly – this team could be the greatest Gonzaga team of all time. 
that is absolutely a possibility and they're trending in that direction if they can find that success in March, uh, which eluded them last year. But I know that a lot of these players who were there last year are really hungry to exercise those demons and put themselves in a position where they're playing the third, fourth, third week of March, last week of March, maybe even into early April. That's going to wrap it up for today here on the Locked On Zags podcast. We'll be back later this week getting ready for that big game against San Francisco on Thursday. All sorts of more fun stuff coming your way on Locked On Zags. I want to thank all of you for making the show your first listen or your first watch of the day. Give a shout out to those everyday listeners and a shout out to those of you who have joined us on the Discord channel. Once again, there's a link in the show notes if you want to join. It is free and we're talking Gonzaga basketball 24-7. Thanks again and until Tuesday, as always. Go Zags.